You're tuning in to the Wild, Weird, and Sometimes Normal podcast. If you have a story or a guest recommendation that you think others need to hear, email me at wildweirdandsometimesnormal at gmail.com. Let's get this started. Alex and Brett, kick it! On this episode, I interview Paul Rowland. Paul is an author of ghost and paranormal books, as well as numerous World War II books. Musically, Paul is considered the godfather of steampunk. Paul and I discussed his personal paranormal experiences, his mother's experiences, and some classic ghost stories. Paul's music has been inspired partly by his experiences and the paranormal stories he's read. Normally, I don't incorporate music into the podcast besides Alex and Brett, but when your guest has ghost stories to tell and music related to it, you make changes. Some of Paul's songs sampled include Gabrielle, Beyond the Realm of Sleep, Ghost Ships, Walter the Occultist, and Aleister Crowley. Gabriel is about a ghost. Beyond the Realm of Sleep touches on out-of-body experiences. Ghost Ships is directly inspired by the story Paul relays in the interview about a sailor seeing an apparition of a man in a ship's quarters. Walter the Occultist is about a doppelganger and bilocation. And then finally, Alistair Crowley is about the English occultist. Check out Paul's work and let him know that you heard him on Wild and Weird. Enjoy the episode. Are you looking for CBD for your pet? My friends at Pure Pet Wellness have what you need. They use the highest quality ingredients. While other companies may use synthetic oils in their CBD, Pure Pet Wellness uses organic ingredients, organically grown hemp, organic coconut oil, organic shea butter, organic beeswax, and that's just to name a few. A family-owned and operated company that also offers fast shipping. Go to purepetwellness.com for all your pet's CBD needs and use the discount code WILD and WEIRD at checkout. That's WILD. A-N-D, weird. Treat your animal right. Go to purepetwellness.com. Are you looking to buy a home in New Jersey? Escape the city and move to the suburbs? Finally purchase that vacation home on the lake or down the shore? Maybe you're one of the lucky ones who are retiring and moving out of state. If so, let me help you. Keller Williams and the Real Estate Professional Group have what you need to make your goals come true. Reach out and have a conversation with someone who will put you first. Contact Brian McCoach at 856-321-1212 or email McCoach at kw.com.
Welcome to another episode of Wild, Weird, and Sometimes Normal. I'm your host, Brian. Today, our guest is Paul Rowland. He's an author and musician. Paul has had personal experiences involving ghosts and the supernatural and has interviewed several people who have had these experiences happen to themselves or to close family members. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. It is bright and early here on the East Coast, and I believe it's almost lunchtime for you. Uh, almost, yes. But I'm on a diet, so I'm not going to have any lunch today. <laughs> we'll skip lunch today. We're, we're yep. going to do a <laughs> power through. Brain food. It. <laughs> That's what it's all about today, brain food. One of your most recent books that I saw, I was flipping through Barnes & Noble, I was checking out a few books, and, and I saw one on ghosts, and I found it just fascinating. What has your experience been with ghosts? Well, the thing is that I come at this whole paranormal subject from, a, I think, quite a, a unique or a different angle from a lot of authors. I had out-of-body experiences as a child, and I continue to have them into adult life. And so the question of life after death is, was never problematic for me. It was just, it was a natural phenomenon. In fact, this is the, the sort of theme of a lot of my books, that the supernatural is not something that is illogical or irrational. It's simply an extension, if you like, of the natural world. And psychics are simply people who are sensitive, acutely sensitive to this subtle energy in all living things. And most people have some form of, we'll call it psychic or paranormal experience, particularly they might experience falling as they wake up. They might experience a sort of lucid dream, but a lot of them deny it because they've been conditioned to think of it as irrational. It doesn't conform to the, the materialistic world. It might not conform to their religion. They might have been indoctrinated with the idea that only saints or specially spiritually evolved people can have such experiences. But frankly, it's my understanding that everybody, we're all the same, so everybody can experience all sorts of phenomenon, as we call it, but it's our interpretation is colored by our conditioning and uh, our attitudes. And the more we accept it without making grand statements, the more we just sort of say, ah, oh, that was interesting. I'll put that in my pocket till I have more information, which is my attitude. The more we do that, the more we actually have these experiences, the more profound these experiences, the more intense these experiences become, and the less anxiety we have about them. My whole purpose in writing these books, frankly, is not to simply chronicle yet more cases, but to encourage people to lose their fear of the unknown, to explore safely. And this is a very important point, to explore it safely, not to do, you know, to jump in like, uh, you know, taking drugs or, or going mad with alcohol or jumping into a fast car without learning. You have to protect yourself, not because there's any particularly malevolent spirits out there, although there might be, but because it's a psychological exercise or a psychological experience you're having, and it's not a normal or an everyday one. And so you're bringing up or you're, shall we even say, awakening or even disturbing, deeply suppressed, perhaps, feelings, fears, primitive fears from as a species, or it might be a, your own experiences as a child or something that you've forgotten about. So we have to be careful in opening up and being receptive to such experiences. But when we do, and if we do it in a safe environment, maybe even simply saying, you know, a prayer that makes you feel comfortable or in, invoking your angels, if you want, want to believe in those, 
or doing it the best way, frankly, the way I sort of started once I felt I wanted to go deeper, was to join a group that was a very benign group, such as a healing group or a meditation group, something that was completely supportive and where you met like-minded people who would talk about these things in a very common sense way, not sensationalize them. Because if you get if you experience that in a group, you know you're probably in the wrong group. Or if you have a very strong guru-type figure who wants to dominate the group and be the authority, that's a, a red flag, I'd say. But if you go to a, if you if you can find a group, it doesn't matter how small it is, in a local church or a whatever, that you, or a friends meeting house. I think the Quakers were a, a group that hired out their hall to the meditation group that I began with. I found a very supportive. A group so that even when I wasn't seeing any any visions, if you like, because visualization in meditation is quite a difficult thing to develop, I was quite discouraged. And if I'd been on my own, I might have given up. But they were very supportive. It was all very calm. It was all very quiet. It all was very, as I say, sort of benign is, is really the word. It was encouraging. You heard what other people experienced. You heard how they interpreted it, how the group interpreted it. And eventually, like a, a flower, this this ability or this facility opened up in me and I began to have very vivid visualizations or, or visions. And I felt that I was on a, on a road to self-discovery in good company. So I think that's very important. Unless you are particularly confident for any reason, it's always good to be, at least at the beginning, exploring in a very safe environment so that if you have any shall we say, unnerving or disquieting experiences, you can share that with a group and they'll reassure you. I think that's a very important point. touched on at least five or six different topics that I just want to branch out <laughs> into. No, that was great. And so I'll try to highlight them real quick and we can go on. I think it's, it was really interesting. You talked about going with a group and then trying, you know, as a, um, I don't want to say as a, a support group, but going to a group where you could talk and discuss your different experiences and would help people, you know, maybe categorize them or un unpack them. And I think that's really good. So looking at it from a sports aspect, possibly, if you had a soccer ball, a football over in Europe, if you had a football and a net and you just, and you gave it to a child, they may never put together 
you know, on the proper way to dribble a soccer ball and to score. But then as you put yeah. them with somebody who's experienced and they can help them walk that path, then they can grow and develop those skills. That's a so, great analogy, actually. Yes. Oh, thank you. Uh, and so if you're having these out-of-body experiences or these psychic experiences and never really knowing how to develop with them, you know, it could just be a one-off and you're you're missing out on a great opportunity to explore. This world's absolutely amazing. Uh, just to explore this world and, and see what's happening. Sorry, the other thing I, I just wanted to interject there is, um, of course, a, a group also provides guided visualizations. If they're not a healing group, when they're doing that specifically, they're guiding you to very specific states of awareness, shall we say. You can raise your awareness to access these other realities, if you like, because this is there's more than one reality. This physical reality is only one, and we occupy four simultaneously all the time the spiritual which we might not be consciously aware of but we are connected to the mental so the all the intellectual the, the thought processes the thought world the emotional realm if you like or the emotional world which is actually where we believe the etheric or dream body or the astral body exists and the physical of course which is the only one that while we're awake is the only one we're actually conscious of. But in sleep, we can access other dimensions. Now, what I like to say is that when we're in the shallow end of sleep, if you like, where we're just reprocessing all the stimuli from the day, this is where we get this cartoony nonsense stuff. And yet, of course, we think it's all really happening to us in the dream. And we wake up and realize that's complete nonsense. But in certain stages of sleep, we can go into the deep end, if you like. And this is where we can maybe if you like, connect with people who have passed over. And so you wake up and you say, that was really real. I, I, you know, I, I, I saw my father as he used to be. He was happy and he wasn't ill anymore. And he told me this and he told me that, and it felt so real. And then you get quite emotional because you feel the connection. And if you go along this spiritual path we were talking about and develop it consciously, if you're an active participant in this evolution of the self, if you want to call it that, you'll then experience these phenomena more frequently and they'll be more profound. And the more that you accumulate these experiences, the more insight you'll gain into your true nature and into the relationship, if you want to call it, between life and death. So there's no longer such a distinction. One isn't reality and the other a mystery and the supernatural. It's simply one is your waking reality and the other is the more profound eternal reality, which you glimpse just from time to time. But of course, when you glimpse these things, it's open to the interpretation when you wake up, you're conditioning your culture and you can twist these things a bit if you're very opinionated or very anchored in particular belief system, should we put it that way? And you'll say, oh, you know, I saw Jesus or I saw, you know, four lions surmounted by a blah, blah, blah. This is symbolic because this is the unconscious interprets these impressions in as symbols because it doesn't understand language. This is our construct, if you like. So it's very important if you're going to any kind of spiritual or psychic development course or path that you have this attitude, which is, I'm not going to jump to any conclusions, no matter how strong the experience is, I'll put it in my back pocket, as I always say, until I have another piece of the puzzle. I'm not going to tell other people this, I had this experience, and therefore it means this. 
you know, this is how each individual interprets something. I think it's very important to have that sort of modest, if you like, attitude to think, because you'll learn more, you'll be more relaxed. You don't go looking for specific answers to the great questions. You're going, I think, uh, somewhere in the Bible, somebody says, um, come as, as a child. It means come very um, innocent, come without your baggage, if you like, without conceptions, and you'll get much more from it. But you have to accept it's a, it's a slow, for most of us, it's a slow process. But it, it really can accumulate wonderful insights and a confidence, a loss of fear, a loss of fear in life, a loss of fear of death, because you you gain so many assurances and other experiences that'll make you well not so anxious you know and also not not so intense you know you don't have to get everything done today because there's many many lifetimes you've have lived many lifetimes and you will live many more and also of course then it takes all this religious baggage away all falls away and you just become a human being looking for enlightenment and connection to the great being or energy or whatever you want to call it that brought all life into being yeah i don't want to be too pretentious about it but what i'm trying to say is instead of it being this very narrow i'm going into a haunted house and i'm going to you know it's it's all very categorized as this is a poltergeist this is a, a phantom forerunner this is an example of bilocation or whatever all these things sort of get put into perspective and you're into a, a much more useful and marvelous experience because you're looking at the the big picture put it that way then so you mentioned four different realities the you know the dream the spiritual mm. you know, the physical reality that we're in and if we're lucky we get a good 70 80 90 100 years out mm -hmm. of this life as you know human beings mm -hmm. waking working finding friends and love and great things like that and then there's the eternal life i would not categorize my entire life as being that small amount of time that i was a child you know i've mm -hmm. had a much more broader experience and grown and develop and learn new things Mm -hmm. Yeah. If we're on this earth for such a short period of time, which is reality, eternal reality is the is the more concrete one. The current reality that we only experience through filters and through you know, social constructs that is our current reality that we focus on very heavily. Do you understand my question? Yes, I do. Well, the answer is they're both equally important. The thing is, let's say meditation is you can become a bliss junkie, and that means that you abrogate responsibility for your daily life to get this high, to escape the pressures of the world and the responsibilities. That's a danger. So you always limit yourself to, let's say, 20 minutes meditation and no more, and only once a day, maybe twice if you feel you need it. So to answer your question, you have to use this life because it's a great gift to get as much experience as you can, to interact with other people, to learn, if you like, to I want to say suppress the ego, but you know, keep that little monkey tightly chained like you would a child who everything is me, everything is self-centered. We all go through that. That's part of our development. But when we reach adulthood, and I know we wanted to talk about ghosts and I've got lots of cases, so we can go back to that in a minute. But but basically the, the sort of impression I get from all of this and from a lifetime of what is it, 50 years or more of of actually practicing, if you like, meditation and Kabbalah, which I've studied quite intensely, is this bigger theme, if you like, which is that if life is a school and every experience, good and bad, is important to our development, and if we don't face certain things, it just comes back again and we get another opportunity to, to face this particular challenge, as we call it, then we're contributing to our development. And the more 
the point is that sort of allied to this whole paranormal thing that we were going to talk about is the other point that what is the point of all these phenomenon what is the point of all these experiences whether whether it's seeing a ghost whether it's having an out of body or near death experience whether it's some sort of clairvoyant thing oh i heard the phone ring i knew the phone was going to ring before it did or whatever or i had a feeling that auntie so and so was in trouble or whatever and then you find out she is all these things that are a, a natural phenomenon that that we all ex- pretty much all of us experience from time to time some of us more than others they all, not symptoms exactly, but they're all signs that, that we are more than this material flesh, blood and bone being. And so, but why do we come down here? Because if we were purely spiritual or pure consciousness or pure spirit, we couldn't interact with others. We couldn't experience certain things. We have to come down here, be in this body be trapped in this and be separated from the source, whatever you want to call the source. That is the source, as the Buddhists would say, of, of suffering, being separated from the divine, from love in, in its you know most powerful form, the thing that, that gave form and life to everything. It's this separation, this feeling of loss that spurs us on to look for love and acceptance and so on. So if we withdraw from life, if we withdraw from people, if we feel everybody is evil or grasping or whatever, and we want to be pure and sit in meditation the whole of our life, of course, life is going to be easy for us because we're going to have no no challenges to solve. We're going to be like, um, you know, somebody that goes off to a mountain retreat. Being peaceful and being within yourself is fine up to a point. But one of the teachings of the Kabbalah is that only the person who involves themselves commits themselves if you like to family and of course it doesn't have to be the traditional sort of family it could just mean the family of humanity if you like unless you commit yourself unless it's give and take and you learn to compromise and you learn you learn from other people even if you don't like them even if they appear to be obnoxious or or even evil you learn from everybody and you'll find if you do i should say i have found that you make this jumps occasionally you make um, substantial sort of leaps in understanding and certain things no longer keep occurring to block you anymore. You've overcome that lesson, you know, and to resolve conflict, even when it, it's not necessarily in your interest, to be magnanimous, to be compassionate or what have you. That's what's helped all these great gurus and spiritual figures through the millennia to attain enlightenment, because after all, that, that's what we want. We can't take our possessions with us. We can't take our attainments with us, even even though they obviously help us to evolve and grow. All we can take is the love that we have um, generated, cultivated here. If you are, you know, it's like it's like a garden of flowers. You know, you can neglect it. You can hope that nature is going to take its own course, but you'll end up with a garden of weeds. You know, that's what I I got from starting with out of body experiences, which are perfectly natural. And I'd like to talk about that in a, in a minute, quite briefly, just to, to show you why I, I found them a very profound experience and also what they reveal to me. But the basic thing is, after you've gone through all these typical hauntings and, and other phenomenon, they're not important. They are just little bits of evidence, if you like, that you join all these dots together and you say, okay, what does that signify? See, that was the thing. When I had out-of-body experiences, I wanted to know, okay, that's that's great, but what does it signify? Because in itself, it's simply a phenomenon. It's simply an experience. And that's what all these, most ghost books and, and other um, paranormal books are about. They're simply a, 
a catalogue, a collection of phenomena, but they don't tell us anything. Hamlet, Shakespeare said, you know, more Horatio in heaven and earth than, than we could know and all this sort of thing. But we know that. We've got that hundreds of years ago. We know this countless phenomena happened to people of, in all cultures. But you have to ask yourself, why do so many cultures share the belief in the soul? I mean, virtually every, I think it was 157 different cultures around the world share the same belief. They call it different things and they, they envisage it in different ways. But I mean, let's take the ancient Egyptians, for example, they had to get back onto sort of solid ground, if you like, they practiced putting their dead in sarcophagi of increasing refinement because it symbolized the various stages of the, the human body. So they had the outer physical large sarcophagi with, with all the decoration, the thick wooden one, then the internal one, which, if you like, was the emotional. I think they talked about the car and the bar. They had names for each of these elements of the, of the person and the intellect. And finally, the, the spiritual. I think the spiritual, the, the soul was the car, if I remember rightly. And so they, they were physically representing their belief in the soul 2,000 plus years ago. And there's one particular story where an academic in recent years, in the 1930s, actually, it was, it was an English occultist called Dr. Paul Brunton. He spent the night in the king's chamber and he experienced an involuntary astral journey. If I can just read very briefly this, this paragraph, because this, we're now getting into specifics, if you like. He said, all my muscles became taut, after which a paralyzing lethargy began to creep over my limbs. My entire body became heavy and numb. The feeling developed into a kind of iciness. All sensation in the lower limbs was numb. I appeared next to pass into a semi-somnolent condition. I felt myself sinking inwards in consciousness to some central point within my brain while my breathing became weaker and weaker. There was a final mad whirl within my brain. I had the sensation of being caught up in a tropical whirlwind and seemed to pass upwards through a narrow hole. Then there was a momentary dread of being launched into infinite space. I had gone ghost-like out of my earthly body. I think that's a very significant experience. It's also one that I felt when I had out-of-body experiences. It's one I think we all feel. That's dislocation from the body, sinking, and then being, uh, he says, shot out, if you like. I found it a very liberating experience. I found it, I was fully aware, this is when I was about six years old, the first one I had. I had been, I woke up out of a dream. So I'd been dreaming. I woke up out of it and I found myself flying across the ocean. And it was a liberating, wonderful, freeing experience. Child, but obviously my spirit was not six years old. So this is, this is interesting that inside each person is this accumulation of many lifetimes. And that's what's freed. So you lose all your ego. You lose all your worldly anxieties and everything when you are in this state, your true state, if you like. Anyway, I flew across the ocean and I found myself hovering over my aunt and grandmother in Ireland, who I was very close to and I'd been visiting. And obviously I'd missed them. I must have unconsciously wished to reassure myself that they were okay. So I was hovering over them. I saw that they were okay. And I came back, I fell back into my body. I remember the falling sensation and I'd felt it many times since. And I thought, that's great. You know, so this is, so this is the real me, if you like. And I had other experiences like that, except I was foolish enough. It was at the time of the exorcist when I was about 
well, a, t- a young teenager, about 12 or 13, the exorcist was out. And I saw them program where they were trying to exercise a, an evil spirit and somebody was shaking. It was a very fearful thing to see because it was a documentary, especially for an impressionable teenager. They put a fear into me that had not existed. And so I couldn't spontaneously leave my body anymore until I became an adult and I'd gone to these groups and I'd got my confidence back. And I, I was doing things within a, a group. I didn't feel vulnerable anymore. I didn't feel fearful. And so I'd, I'd wake up in the middle of the night out of a dream and I'd find myself in another part of the house. But unfortunately, the shock of finding myself in the kitchen or whatever was enough to snap me back into my body. Because, of course, the adult has all these thoughts and what might happen if I can't get back and all these other sorts of things, which, it, which the child doesn't have. But then one morning I had a very interesting experience. I woke up. I still had my eyes closed and I found my I could feel that I was an inch or two above my body, but still very, very close to it on the bed. And I found I could at will go in and out, up and down for as long as I liked. And I kept telling myself, come on, don't be fearful this time. This time have the courage and go exploring. But unfortunately, the adult, you know, I had two children, then I had responsibilities. I couldn't do I thought, What if this happens? What if I don't know? You know, all this unfortunately came to I opened my eyes and that was it. But for quite a long time, I was hovering in and out of my body. So I've had a lot of evidence or proof, as far as I'm concerned, that this is our natural state of being, that once we cast off this, this body, you know, we're free and we're ourselves again. What is beyond that, I only know from the sort of near-death experience books I've written and reincarnation books you know, from other people's experience. I haven't had a near-death experience, but the joy of being released from the body, the joy of being free and flying about told me so much. And also, of course, it, it gave me this, this hunger to learn more of any kind of experience. So, you know, I joined a healing group and I learned things from that and I joined meditation groups and I studied Kabbalah and things. And the Kabbalah gave me the structure one where I felt everything made sense, that as above, so below. You know, if you, if you want to know what our true nature, just look outside and you'll see a reflection of how, you know, the, the seasons they tell you, for one thing, nothing dies. Things grow, they bear fruit, they decay, but they don't die. They are transformed. Energy is, is you know, transmuted into something else. Things just are cyclical, yes? So, this, this sorrow we feel when, when we lose something, obviously we can't see them, we can't touch them, we can't feel them. Actually, let me get onto, onto ghosts from here. This is a, a good segue, if I may. I always think that the newest thing is the, is the best example. The other day, I went to see an old friend. Actually, she was my, my psychic mentor, if you like, uh, had introduced me to a lot of things. And she told me about the time 20, 30 years ago when she visited her dying father in hospital. And he said he had been a bit of a womanizer and he was anxious i don't know how frightened he was but he was anxious that he might not get to heaven or however he put it and she just took both of his hands and said you know i I can tell you it's going to be fine I, i can sense you're going to be all right don't don't have any fear and a short while later he he died and when she came into her room after i think yeah after taking the phone call that that gave her the news that he died she saw him sitting there largest life solid not like a ghost rapture and he had this expression with his hands which was aha you know you were right and then he vanished so that that's the latest ghost story i had 
but I thought that was a nice one because it, it shows you that, um, like him, I remember when I was out of my body, I thought, ah, I'm still me, you know? There, there is no death. That was actually the, the key. That was the crucial point. And I think that's what he was showing her too. You know, even though he as a person had his doubts, that didn't stop him from having the release that was natural to him. And he found himself alive. If you know, oh, I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to go to purgatory or some process, you know. But no, it's, it's just everything's just exactly the same. That, I think, is a pleasant shock that I remember getting. Oh, you know, that body on the bed, is, is that me? I mean, I didn't look at my body on the bed. I must admit, other people have done. And I've put that in my books where they float around the house and then they go back and they see themselves actually in the bed and then they consciously decide to re-enter their body. But I remember this feeling of, so there is no death. I'm, I'm exactly the same as I was a moment ago, except I, I'm not heavy. I'm not contained within this body. I'm not sick or I'm not, you know, and I'm not frightened of anything. It was bliss, except that I wasn't dead. Presumably the next stage is full bliss. This was just a liberation, a freedom. Is remote viewing and out-of-body experiences the same? Is that similar? No, I practice remote viewing and I interviewed, in fact, I'm glad you mentioned, I interviewed an American army chap, David Morehouse, I remember his name was. He wrote a book. He claimed, I have to say that because I can't be sure, he claimed to be part of some sort of covert unit in the American army, which practiced remote viewing so they could see the enemy's missile silos or whatever it was, installations and so forth. And I found him a very convincing subject and I practiced remote viewing a little bit at the time to see if I could do it. I think I had a bit of success. No, it's really projecting your consciousness to a specific predetermined place. What I have done which I think is close to it or related to it is I've practiced psychometry, which is, as you, I'm sure you know, you take a possession from a stranger, preferably, and you just hold it, close your eyes and connect with it, if you like. And if it's a, an object like a ring or a watch that they've worn a lot, not just something they've used once and put aside, you should be able to sensitize yourself to the residual personal energy, which is a key to a lot of psychic phenomena. And I did this to a recording engineer in a studio I was working with, and I described a scene that I saw. And he said, that is where I was a few weeks ago on holiday. That is exactly the right scene. So that sort of confirmed what I'd felt, you know, but I had to do it with somebody I felt was honest and wouldn't say something just to please me. He was quite shocked. So Again, you know, all these little things, they don't add up to, you know, something that you could say, oh, now I can form a religion and we'll all practice psychometry and we'll get the answer. But it just shows you all the different sensitivities that you have if it's connected to another human being. Other human being doesn't have to have um, a connection with you. They don't have to believe in it. But we all radiate this energy. I mean, otherwise you're just a lump of flesh, bones. Yeah. So we are these sort of chemical batteries, if you like, made up of all these. And we're obviously when we're, when we feel a great emotion, maybe anger or fear, such as people do in battle, perhaps that's why they leave their ghost behind. It's not a, it's not themselves. It's not a spirit, but it could be a, 
a residual impression left in the ether because it was such a traumatic experience that that they leave this sort of photograph and then what the other important part of it is it's up to how sensitive the, the viewer is as to what they see or whether they see anything at all obviously i mean there's this uh, examples in some of my books where people psychics that don't go to a particular place to pick up anything where they happen to be on a holiday or what have you and they see a ghost army let's say why do they see a ghost army are all those dead people trapped there i don't think so because that's unnatural that's cruel you know if if everything is love that would be not be right it must simply be an impression left behind by this traumatic event which makes sense to me you know there's so many people killed wounded in pain dreadful fear and all this violence going i mean you can just sort of sense it. if you see anything violent and you're sensitive if you're sensitive acutely sensitive you'll feel a sort of disturbance you know dis- a disquieting it'll be you'll be upset shall we say so of course when something like that occurs on that scale it must leave an impression but it i certainly could not believe that they are trapped spirits reliving the same thing in fact i was reading this morning for this interview one of the stories was about wilfred owen the the world war 1 poet and his spirit appeared to his brother who is hundreds of miles away on a ship and the brother went down into his cabin he didn't know owen was dead yet and he saw his brother he knew this was he couldn't be there physically how did he get there was his first thought and he felt himself i remember reading physically sort of frozen and he was in shock because he knew this was not natural if you like but his brother was there and he smiled and the smile and his eyes the look on his eyes radiated this peace even though he'd obviously just been killed and it was very reassuring to his brother and then only when owen vanished after his brother looked away for a moment did the sort of emotion strike him but he felt this was very natural very right and only then he learned that his brother had been killed so usually the passing of a soul that even even in battle there even in a violent death it seems to confirm what i was saying before that the release of the real person and they come to reassure if they can their loved ones who at the same time must be receptive to this because perhaps this occurs a lot of times where the deceased appear to their loved ones to reassure them but the loved ones for one reason or another blank it out so they don't see anything they might feel something perhaps but they don't necessarily see anything so i think it's those who are on that sort of wavelength pick this up or see this or have this encounter and those who do not well there's a a saying my clairvoyant friend that i told you about always told me she said for those who believe no proof is necessary for those who don't no proof is enough and i think that's that's quite key i think that's a great saying and it relates a lot to religion where if people are deeply religious they don't need signs to yeah. to believe and then the 100% pro science people they'll come off as their religious stance is i don't believe in science you know typically mm-hmm. if they're if they're anti god you know where is your proof showing yeah that there there is this spiritual power and it's a good saying i think for a lot of things i also like the the, the objects and a person imprinting their to a personal object of theirs they're almost imprinting a piece of them onto it that then can be felt by somebody later and my question that you did answer about you know the, the ghost of gettysburg there's 
you know, there's there's stories out in Pennsylvania over here that there's, you know, civil war ghosts still mm. roaming the battlefield. And I like your explanation of it, that the power of that moment, the intensity of that moment, it's almost like they imprinted on that matter that was in front of mm. that matter of, of air and hydrogen and everything that's built up that you're breathing around, that their spirit is imprinted upon that. And yeah. they're not cursed for eternity, that that is no. their new reality of always wandering the fields of, a, of you know, probably the worst thing that ever happened to them. Yes. You reminded me this. What's interesting about what we need to differentiate between sort of the, the glut of cliched ghost stories and the ones that actually are significant are those in which more than one person sees the ghost. And there's one particular case I was looking at this morning to illustrate this, in which two ladies very recently, I think in the 1990s in England, were walking along a country lane and they felt a presence. And then one of them saw, it was ahead of them, and one of them saw a complete blank spot, if you like, ahead of them, but she sensed there was a person there. And as she got closer, she saw the half of this person and her friend saw the whole person and they exchanged notes and they remembered it was a cheeky sort of farm laborer and he wore this and his hair was like this and so on. And I mean, I've got it right here if you want dates or something and names. But the interesting thing was they had both been sensitive enough to perceive that something was there, but they each saw a slightly, well, they saw the same entity, but they perceived it differently. One was perhaps more sensitive than the other. Perhaps that's why she saw the whole person and the other one only saw part. But there are many, many cases. In fact, there's another one I'd like to tell you, which is much earlier, a Victorian priest in an orphanage was sleeping in the dormitory to protect the, the children, looking after the children. And he saw a very bright light, like he said, candle. Oh, it's five feet in height. So it's clearly a person, an apparition, but he couldn't see any features. And it was hovering over a, over a child's bed. And in the morning, he had to dress the children, especially when they were small. And the, the little boy said, my mother came to me last night. And the priest didn't want to say anything, felt he shouldn't really confirm or say anything. But, but the point was that he had seen the, the ghostly light of a figure and the child said, independently of this, the next morning, you know, my mother visited me. These sort of things I, I find much more interesting than, than instances where one person says, I saw this ghost. Oh, this Bye. 
That's a very good one, where a seaman on board a ship went down into the cabin and saw another sailor who he didn't recognize scribbling on a slate. And he looked at the message and it said, steer this way, or yeah, nor'west, if I remember rightly, don't go on your usual course. And then the, the person disappeared. And the sailor who'd seen this told his captain, he said, you know, you'll you think I'm, I'm crazy, but... I mean, it, it felt so real, and, and he was very specific. It's written on this slate. We've got to steer into this direction instead. And fortunately, the captain, cautious man, and, and, and took the advice. And eventually, they came upon the wreck of another ship, and they were in time to pick up the survivors from the water. And one of the survivors, the original seaman who had seen the, the apparition, recognized as the man who had written the message, the warning message. And when he talked, when the, he and the captain talked to this man, the man said, oh, yes, I, I fell asleep at some point and I dreamt I was on board another ship and I had this urge, this compulsion to warn you because I, I knew that we were in danger. I don't know if they'd actually hit. No, they hadn't hit anything yet. Otherwise, he wouldn't be dreaming. But obviously, they were sailing towards a, an iceberg or whatever it was. And that, I thought, was um, another very compelling example. There's, there's so many of these. It's quite incredible, you know? There really I have a is. quick question. You're talking about the sailor and he, he's scribbling on a slate. Is there ever an experience or any type of documentation of a ghost leaving something, creating something new and, and leaving it behind? I haven't come across anything like that because they tend not to be able to do anything physically even if they're seen not as smoky apparitions, but solid, they still don't tend to... No, I don't know of anyone. Oh, of course, that's not a ghost. That's the reason, actually, I wanted to tell you the story. That's an example of bilocation, where somebody, who, a living apparition, this is another phenomenon. Of course, that chap was alive, and therefore, for whatever reason, he might have been able to do something physical while he still held on to life. I think that was the key. There's also a case of Emily Sagui, I think her name is a French lady, who involuntarily practiced uh, bilocation. She was a school teacher in the 19th century, and she was seen by pupils and the other staff members to be in two places at once. They would see her teaching in the classroom, and then they would see her wandering about the, the grounds. And this happened many times. In fact, it happened so often. In the end, pupils were going to leave the school because they were unnerved by it. Their parents were going to take them out. So they had to fire her. And I think she'd had something like seven previous posts because it kept happening. And then you get the, the, the German lady, I remember in Munich. Oh, 1967, this was. Um, this is an example of a sort of poltergeist activity. It might, ex might explain poltergeist activity. It's, it's all sort of linked. I know I'm going off on different tangents, but it's, uh, what I'm trying to say is because people are not 
are more than the physical being, as we talked, they can produce these various phenomena or, or effects, if you like, con- unconsciously, usually. This a German young woman seemed to be emotionally a bit unstable, shall we say, or a bit intense. And so whenever she was working in a solicitor's office, and whenever she walked down the corridor, the lights would swing. Whenever she stared at the clock, impatient to go home, the speaking clock would ring. They found phone bills, recorded all these phone calls to the speaking clock, which, of course, she'd never made. She was simply obsessed. And her mind was strong enough to make this connection, if you like. They took her to a laboratory and did various experiments with her. And in the end, there's more, a lot more to this story, which is in one of my books. But the, the gist of it was that only when she married and settled down did the phenomena cease. You know? So this was not a poltergeist. This was a living person producing, if you like, bursts of kinetic energy which a lot of teenage girls particularly seem to do. So that seems to be the origin of a lot of these, the Enfield poltergeist and all these other, although that may, of course, just be children larking about. When it is genuine, it seems to be this natural phenomenon. And that's basically the, the core of my theme, if you like. All these supernatural or paranormal occurrences are actually simply normal phenomenon that we either don't officially recognize or we can't explain because we don't know the capacity, the true capacity of the human being under certain strains and conditions, because there's, there's also what are called crisis apparitions, where people, for example, that seaman who dreamt uh, that he had to get a message out before it was too late. Obviously, the stress, the, the fear they were in danger was enough to project him in his sleep to another place. At this point, instead of talking about classic cases, if I may, I'll bring in another personal one, which was some years ago, I woke up and I heard my aunt's voice saying, auntie so-and-so is dead, dear. I normally don't hear anybody else's voice. If I imagine somebody speaking to me, it would be in my own voice, you know. But this was clearly her voice. I recognized immediately. And so I phoned my my mother and I said, I don't want to worry you, but aunt so-and-so, your sister, might be in some trouble. She's an elderly lady. So my mother phoned the flat, no answer. She phoned the hospital where my aunt had gone over those past few days to visit my uncle who was terminally ill in case she was there. No, she wasn't there either. So she phoned the police, which I, I was quite surprised at. But my mother obviously believed me. She was, was psychic herself, actually, and had many experiences. And the police came to the flat and not getting a response, they broke down the door and my aunt was lying unconscious. She'd had an aneurysm or something similar. They'd rushed her off to hospital and they saved her. But obviously at the point where she was unconscious and I was unconscious or in that limbo between you know consciousness and, and waking up, we connected and her distress call, if you want it, reached me and I acted on it. So I, I don't need convincing that these sort of things are possible. And I'm not concerned to differentiate which ones are not true and which ones aren't because the gist of the whole thing is all this is possible so which case you know is exaggerated or or made up by some sort of mischievous person for publicity or whatever and the genuine ones it's not important to me the the phenomenon is a fact of, of nature if you like and that's what's important that's absolutely fascinating that's amazing you know even though the message was a little murky you know it didn't come out to be 100 percent accurate, mm-hmm. but the message was, I need help or aunt so-and-so needs help. 
Well, she was dead. Of course, she was dead. Oh, oh um, okay. Clinic, cl- clinic, clinically, if you know. Yeah, I mean, she was unconscious. Um, she was probably in a, in a, in a coma-type state. And had she not been rescued, that was her gone. But, you know, she, she'd had this uh, aneurysm, so she was, yeah, as I say, sort of in a comatose connection, or between, between life and death, shall we, shall we say. And I, right. I was too at that, at that moment, if you like, you know, because sleep, I think sleep is a key to the the death state, if if you want to call it that. I haven't figured that one out yet, but um, I feel there's, you know, there's some clue there. Why do we all go to sleep for eight hours approximately every night? It's not because the body needs rest. They've, uh, scientists have gone into that and they say the body do- doesn't need that amount of rest. There must be something we need or we need to go into that state. I mean, think how unnatural it is in, in, in a way. Of course, it's natural, but think of how, how strange it is. We're all busy working on these, whatever we do, you know, very intense and some very highly intellectual and very technical. And then we, we drop into bed and are unconscious for eight hours. There must be something really significant to this, which we haven't figured out yet. Um, that's why we're probably not afraid of death because it's a very similar experience, but we haven't quite figured out what this connection is with death and death of course not being the end simply another state of consciousness it must be more or less the same as when we sleep but we have this as i say shallow end of sleep which is not significant and then deeper stages of sleep in which we can attain different levels of aware awareness oh there's something actually I, I do want to get into if i may which is you said i'm a musician as well as an author and because of those out-of-body experiences as a child have been preoccupied, if not obsessed, by the supernatural, if you like. And so when I began to write music and, and write songs, that became my principal theme, also historical stuff, but mainly supernatural. Sometimes it's serious. I draw on the, the stories of H.P. Lovecraft and the ghost stories of M.R. James and Edgar Allan Poe, but also some wistful, sort of whimsical times, because I don't take all these supernatural things too seriously. I think that's a good thing to have, you know, to, to, as I say, not only to put it in your back pocket, but also not to, to swallow everything that you're fed. You know, a bit of cynicism is, is a healthy thing when you're exploring anything, but particularly with the, with the supernatural, otherwise you, you know, go a bit balmy probably if you believe everything you read. That's why some of my books have a slight cynical tone because some of the things I find a bit, particularly with exorcism, where I think people are, are doing a lot of psychological damage to people who are not possessed but have psychological problems, but that's a very dark and serious subject for another time, perhaps. But I just wanted to say, it's quite interesting, to show you that what can happen if you do follow this path and practice meditation and all the other spiritual disciplines. I don't know how long this has been happening, but every time after I perform live and I go back to the hotel and close my eyes every single time, and I don't know how long this has been going on, when I close my eyes, I see another reality and what it is it's abstract shapes or a landscape and the abstract shapes and usually the landscape glow from within it's the same luminescence that people have described when they see uh, like that light that the priest saw above the child's bed there's a light a luminescence a vitality in living apparitions and other ghosts and clearly i have attained a certain I don't know, attuned myself to a certain frequency or attained a certain awareness or whatever by performing to people. It doesn't happen when I record something, even though I'm working with other people and there's great pleasure in that. So it's not that. It must be because there's an audience and there's a link 
a psychic or an emotional link, a bit like the thing we were saying with the battle almost, but in, in a positive way, that people are attuned to each. I mean, we all know that, you know, rock music is this primal Dionysian thing and it has tribal power and it can inflame people and it incite them and it can also excite them. And sacred music can raise your awareness and your spirit. So all this is going on with music. And clearly, even to somebody as you know minor as myself, I ex because I'm on this spiritual path, when I perform music to an audience, there's some sympathetic link or what have you. And I see these this other reality. You know. Now, I've asked quietly, what does this signify? And I don't get an answer. So I think it's simply attaining a level of awareness, uh, like you do in, in the deep stages of sleep, because I've done this. But again, what does it signify? What good is it? I don't know. I think it's it's simply saying this is a good thing to be doing. You know, it's like like a happy uh, religious ceremony or a, or a happy birthday or something where you do something with, for other people and with other people. And if they're on your wavelength, should we put it that way, this phenomenon occurs. I'd like to know what, what they experience when they close their eyes at night. <laughs> Maybe nothing. Maybe they just remember an, a nice concert or something. But I thought that was worth putting in that it can affect you in these seemingly insignificant but interesting ways. Yeah. Can I jump in with your music real quick? Please. Do you do you keep a journal next to your bed or a tape recorder? You know, like it's an iPhone now, whatever it is, and wake up from dreams or from sleep and and have partial lyrics, full lyrics, music of any type that that you're writing down that you're inspired by. You know, um, seamlessly out of nowhere. No, <laughs> sorry. For once, I give, I give a short answer. I've, I've read about people who, who do, like I remember Paul McCartney woke up with yesterday as scrambled eggs all in his head, and it was so easy for him. He thought he must have heard it somewhere else and kept asking people, where have I heard this before? And he wasn't the only one. But no, I, I haven't had that, to be honest, no. Keith Richards had one too, where he was muttering in his sleep, and I, I think it was the hook oh, for yes. satisfaction, I believe. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was that one, but yes, I think I think it was Keith Richards was the other one that I, I remembered. That's right. Yeah, uh, not that the most spiritually minded person you would have thought, but but you see, it's it's not about the outer persona, you know, it's about something that's that's the true nature of these people. You know, he's still going, so he must be doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> something right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so for poltergeist, you know, we've talked about you know possibly the imprinting on your your space for ghosts, uh, or they're not trapped in eternity on the plane of earth, the, the reality that we're experiencing. But then there's there's stories of poltergeist causing physical harm to people, scratches, smashing glasses. What type of energy is that? And is that is is that a, a person poltergeist? Is this a demon? Is this an entity of some sort? Right. F first of all, I don't believe in demons. I think there's no evidence to do that. I think sim if you think about it, just because there might be angels or higher energies does not necessarily mean there has to be the opposite. And that which is perfect cannot create that which is imperfect. We are imperfect only in the sense that we are denying our true nature, some of us, more than some of us more than others. So I think that's a very important point because it also makes life much more positive for all its problems. Yeah, That which is Perfect cannot create that which is imperfect. We are simply in the state of becoming perfect. And if you think that, you know, a lot of problems that we experience will hopefully be seen merely as challenges to be overcome and we'll be helped to overcome them. But going back, so I just I dismiss any suggestion of demons or anything like that. I think the most evil thing out there in this world and in the 
non-material realm, if you like, are people. They're people who are obsessed, damaged in some ways. Maybe they're they're addicted. It don't have to be. It doesn't have to be alcohol or drugs. They can be addicted to gambling. They can be addicted to anything, because it means it's something they can't let go of. And the key to the transition, the peaceful transition to the other side of life, as I call it, is letting go not only of the person who has passed, but people they leave behind. If you let them go, you think of them fondly. You pray whatever for help for them to be collected by their loved ones from the other side. However, you want to visualize it. Letting go means that you are bereaved less intensely over a shorter period. You suffer less, and they are feel sense that you've let them go and they move on so all this talk of evil i think is a construct that we've come up with to explain negative things we can't understand but which are created by people so back to the the poltergeist thing although i say i contend that quite a number of famous cases were cynical pranks caused by you know usually children or or teenage girls who wanted attention and somehow fooled the investigators. I would not be surprised, shall we say, if some of the most, the more violent cases, particularly the ones investigated by, by Colin Wilson, the, the author of The Occult, who is a, a very good inve- um, objective investigator, and wrote one of the forwards to my books, which was my Oscar, if you like, when I got his um, blessing. I think those cases that he and others like him, serious investigators, do involve an entity but they would be a person who is a disquiet spirit, a mischievous spirit, a malign spirit who is a per- who has been a person who simply cannot let go, who wants, to, if you like, attention, you know, who, who wants to disturb you. There are plenty of these, their counterparts in, in our world, you know, people who are, do things just because they're maliciously inclined, you know, by nature. And they are simply, as I said, the same person on the other side. You are the same person on the other side. So why should somebody who is by nature malicious, violent, vindictive, hateful, and can't let go of that that resentment and that anger, why would there be any different on the other side? Eventually, God willing, if you like, that even they discard their, or come to discard their, their hatred or their feelings, and shall we say, rise up, you know, and are... But it, but for some considerable time, we've no idea how long, they probably, you know, carry on this this wanton destruction and disturbance of other people for the fun of it. On the other side, of course, I'm told very early on that quite a lot of ghosts were seen at their workplace, continuing their work because they simply couldn't envisage or conceive of a life other than that, which is very sad. I don't think they are the residual energy, the, the, the photographic uh, imprint, as we talked about with the, the armies and the, de- the soldiers. and the, I think these are the spirits of people locked down here, trapped down here, because in their mind they can't envisage any other reality. But obviously, I say obviously, I, my understanding is that eventually they are released from this too, whether it's their own higher self eventually becomes the louder voice and tells them, how is it possible that you're still working this lathe or on this computer when you know that technology has moved on? Or let's, let's say you're still in the armaments factory and the, you know the war ended and we were victorious or defeated or whatever, yes? And then they, it's like in a dream, they realize they're dreaming, yeah? 
I think it's the same thing. It clicks. Yes, how is this possible? Why am I still here? Why are there no other people here? Why do I come every day? Why do I have no home life? Why am I always here or whatever it is, you know? And so I think they're released from that. But the poltergeist, it's obviously a far more violent emotion. The other thing is you can, I I had this experience when I came out of hospital once about 10 years ago, and I'd been very near death. I didn't feel quite myself. And a psychic looked at me and said, you've got these entities clinging to you. You've got them in the hospital. You have to discard them because they're they're living off you, if you like. They're, They're experiencing life vicariously through you. And if you're an addict of any kind, gambling, as I said, or alcohol or drugs, those people who couldn't throw off that and died in that sort of agony will look like attracts like they will look for somebody else they'll be attracted to somebody with a similar obsession and they'll hook into them and they'll feed off them and these people will then not be able to shake off their addiction because they've got somebody you know a monkey on their back clinging to them who's feeding a parasite basically that and because they're not aware of this they won't seek help you know so there's there's that side of, of things too and it's a disturbing thing but if you're on this path and you have this support and whatever you'll hopefully perceive that there's something wrong you'll find out what it is and you'll have the ability to clear these you mentioned that your mother was psychic yes uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit and then also you mentioned you have two children do they show any psychic ability or or extra no they, they don't no they don't and they're not quite sure whether these things are to be believed or not but as they're still in their 20s they've got plenty of time to to decide. But my mother had a lot of extraordinary experiences. One of them was when she went to a job interview when she was a young woman, she was asked to do an exercise, writing an advert out to see if she could write copy. And she had no idea how to do this. And when she finished, she woke out of a sort of trance. I mean, she wasn't really aware that she'd been in a trance. And she looked at what she'd written, which was good enough to get her the job, but she recognized her dead sister's handwriting. And another time, there are many, many instances. Oh, one, one day, one was particularly interesting. She was in a in a, a dance hall when she was young and a, a voice came into her head and said, your future husband is here. And he was. And another time she was, I don't know where she, I can't remember where she was, but she had a vision, if you like, of being in a certain cinema in Ireland, watching a particular film. I think she might've been watching of same film, I can't remember exactly, but the point being that she phoned her sister afterwards and said, where were you this afternoon? Her sister said, I was in the such and such cinema and I was watching such and such a film. How did you know? My mother said, I don't know, but I was wearing your coat. So sometimes they're very subtle, psychic, if you want to call them that, links between people who are close. And so things occur like that. It's not, it's not always seeing ghosts. It's not always the things that you'll see in, in films or in the media, which sensationalizes these things. That's why I wanted to write the books to desensationalize, take a lot of fear, a lot of nonsense that's been talked about, the paranormal, and the supernatural, and show that it's more likely to be these sort of incidents, these subtle little things, which show the emotional link between people. Because a lot of psychic phenomena is emotional. It's from this etheric body, this dream body. It's on that sort of level that we connect with other people. It's just like this sea of of energy that we're connected because intellectually we're separate, if you like. Physically we're certainly separate. So and and spiritually it's a, we have to raise our awareness very consciously to quite high levels to to have these experiences. But on an emotional level, we can have these glimpses 
of other people's lives. And of course, uh, taking the, the object, the personal object, is another example of that. It's it's all this residual emotion and, and energy. It doesn't have to be unpleasant, of course. Why do some cultures appear to embrace more of the the extra, I don't want to say spirituality, you know, that's, I guess, more of a religious connotation. Why is it that some cultures seem to be more open to interpreting dreams as a possible reality? I think in the Western society, we're so materialistic that it's a survival thing. We, we need to be able to achieve certain things and concentrate on certain things. So we shut out those impressions that we feel are irrelevant. And of course, we feel ourselves sophisticated. If we were religious, we'd feel that was the right path and anything is not right. That's for the saints, that's for the, the shaman or whoever, what we might call the primitive wrongly groups who are closer to, to nature. But I think we a tendency to dismiss things we don't understand, to be fearful of things we don't understand, just as we are with people, unfortunately. So, I mean, I once had a, a school friend who said, oh, yes, I had a an out-of-body experience, but of course it wasn't real. I said, what do, you, what do you mean it wasn't real? You just said you had one. Yes, yes, but the church says it's not possible. I said, but you just said you had one. Yeah, yeah, but it couldn't have been, could it? Because <laughs> it's, it's, you know, in other words, it's not allowed, you know? And and there must be a lot of people who's, who, when they tell their parents they've had such and such an experience, that, oh, you know, you were dreaming. You know, and that's a common phenomenon. Oh, yeah, of course, loads of cases of near-death and out-of-body experiences, scientists and investigators have, have discarded until one of them actually has it. And there was one particular neurosurgeon who I named in one of my books who denied all this until he had this experience. But the point was that during his operation, when he left his body, they had severed or disconnected what numbed the particular part of the cerebral cortex which he had previously insisted caused or created these dreamlike hallucinations and of course if they had rendered this disconnected how else could he explain what he experienced and there was another chap who said oh no i think it was it might even been him when he was in the auditorium explaining this to students he said, one person said, you know, of course, there's no such thing as near-death experiences or, or OBEs. I'm, I've never heard of one. And one of his um, colleagues stood up and said, well, if I had one, you'd be the last person I would tell it to. You know? So if you keep doubting and telling everybody it's absolute nonsense and it's all caused by the dying brain, who's going to want to have a confrontation with you, an argument? They're just going to say, OK, leave him be. I'll talk to somebody who, you know, who's a bit more sympathetic or I'll keep it to myself. I wonder how many people who have experienced out-of-body near-death experiences have never told anyone. I mean, that's that will give you the, the true numbers, if you like. Right. And I mean, I think until recently that if you even brought that up, be laughed at, shunned, depending on your profession, that could mm. be in serious jeopardy. And it's a shame. You mentioned the, the shamans a minute ago and being closer to nature. Do you think being closer to nature puts you more in tune with the out-of-body experiences, with the astral projections? Do you think the the less societal constructs that are they're put upon us that you're you're more able to travel? No, I don't. As a child, I had these experiences, and many other people do. And because we were ready, or we were open, or in my case, you know, I I had this strong desire, compulsion to see my relatives again, and I knew I couldn't get there until we got on an airplane in six months' time or whatever. So that was enough. So nothing will stop you having any of these experiences. And nothing will particularly stimulate these experiences 
other than maybe reading about them and, and doing simple meditation or something to prepare yourself, to show your higher self, I am ready, I am receptive, please listen to me, please tell me something, yes? I think you can you can stimulate the, these experiences as certainly the beginning of the process by actively trying to connect. But as for nature, experience I had that relates to what, what I'm asking is a couple of years ago, I was out in the country. It was a beautiful day and the sun was just shining through tree, no blossoms, no, no flowers or anything particularly. But it was such beauty that it was what Maslow called a peak experience. So I think if you are, if you see the world in the way that I'm describing it, not a place of fear, but a place of bursting with life and opportunity and so on, you are then receptive to these peak experiences, to these glimpses of heaven, call it whatever you like. I'm sure it can happen spontaneously and has happened to many people. But if you actively take an interest or whatever, it's like anything, you know, you, you go to the gym and you're doing exercises, you build your body, you tone your body up. In this way, you're toning your, your mind and your spirit and you're putting your ordinary mind I won't say exactly to sleep, but in meditation, you are physically still, but your mind is, is awake. And that's the difference between relaxation and, and meditation, I'm sure you know, which is not enough to simply rest. But by meditating, your, your mind becomes acutely aware, but still ready to, re to receive anything from the unconscious or the higher self. And the body is completely quiet and passive. So in committing yourself to this path, if you like, and doing these very simple and very safe meditations, you will encourage, if you like, or stimulate glimpses, guidance. You can awaken your, your inner guide, your guardian angel, call it what you like, to give you insight and to answer your questions and to give you guidance when you're really struggling with a problem. So that's, that's if you like, the practical aspect of these we've been talking about phenomenon which simply confirms there's there's more to life than we thought there's a very practical reason because the reason i, I didn't do lucid dreaming as a as a practice or or out of body experiences other than when they naturally occurred was i felt i'm just going to be a spiritual tourist i'm going to be zooming about you know the world looking down on it but what will that tell me it, it won't tell me it won't reveal anything i have to study the Kabbalah, in my case, I have to really think about how things link together, what these things reveal, to understand, to get true and ins profound insights into the meaning of life. Why are we here? And all these other big questions. You know? That's what I'm saying. It starts with ghost stories, but that doesn't take you anywhere. You have to use that, then ask these really important questions. If you're interested in this, if you just want to go through life and be comfortable and accumulate various possessions and whatnot. And, you know, fine. I'm not telling anybody else what to do. I'm just saying, if you are seriously curious and you want to know what these things actually reveal, then just accumulating a lot of cases doesn't, doesn't tell you anything. You need to go further. You need to put the pieces together. You need to differentiate between the, the sensational, oh, wasn't that interesting? Oh, wow. You know, although that's scary or whatever, from the ones that actually say, well, whatever, whatever they, they reveal, they all reveal something if you, if you find genuine cases.
Let me tell you one last case if you want one. I was giving an interview to BBC Radio some years ago on a completely unrelated subject. And the presenter told me that she'd been hospitalized with a life-threatening illness at one point and had woken one night in a highly emotional state, as she put it. A nun on the ward came over to calm her, sat her down, uh, sat down and talked quietly for some considerable time until eventually this lady fell asleep. And when she awoke in the early hours, she asked a nurse if she could talk to the nun again as the night shift hadn't ended and the nun must still be on the ward. But the nurse hadn't heard of the nun and no one in else in the hospital recalled seeing a nun on the wards. And the interviewer had said, you know, I'm getting a shiver just, just thinking about it. And I can still see her now as if she was there just a moment ago. That's a pretty sort of typical thing that when you do have one of these experiences, you see what we'll call a ghost, whether you recognize it as such at the time or not, as this lady didn't. It seems to have more of a, an impact the meeting, you know, a physical person in the normal course of life, the impression it has on you emotionally is reawoken again whenever you talk about it, no matter how many years later. And you see that person. It's it's not like in a dream where, you know, the dream recedes so far. Sometimes you you can't remember it. You've, you've only just woken up. You remember there was something interesting about a, an old car or what have you. And then it's all gone all of a sudden. But these experiences are, are very different in nature. They remain with you. You can't forget them. And they stir up the same emotions because I think, you know, you've connected with something, for want of a better word, something sacred, something beyond us, something greater than us. And so it awakens this awe, the sense of awe that is overwhelming. And people usually get quite emotional when they're talking about this because they've sensed this other world, this greater reality, this person came from, if you like, and gave them comfort, because these are the things that really impact with them. Telling somebody about your beliefs or what have you, is just, just words, it's just talk. But these personal connections, these emotional connections with somebody that comes to help you or comfort you, call it an angel, call it a ghost, whatever you want to call it, you know, it seems to resonate with people very profoundly, very deeply. But there was one funny thing I must tell you, just to sort of wind it up. Not all ghosts might be ghosts. This is an example. I was in a recording studio 20 years ago, and I had come to the point where I'd just come out of a sort of semi-retirement, hadn't recorded anything for seven years, a long time. And I was very unsure of myself whether I should carry on or not. And while I was sort of in this state of undecidedness, I saw, saw a vision. I saw the ghost of Mark Bolan, who'd been a musical hero of mine. I don't know if you remember Mark Bowen or not. He didn't make a great impact in America, but in the early 70s. He was a big hero of mine. I'd written a couple of books about him, some biographies. And he was just smiling. And the song that was playing at the time that we were recording in the studio had nothing to do with him. It wasn't like his music at all or anything. But it was in my, you know, in my field of vision for quite a while, and then it went. Now, it doesn't matter to me whether that was really his ghost or whether it's simply a projection from my subconscious mind. But the point was that the message had been received. It, it was reassuring me that it was worth carrying on. I suspect sometimes when people do see ghosts, it could be a projection from their own mind in a form which they would accept. So it could be somebody that they respect or somebody in their family or a dead friend. It doesn't necessarily mean it was that person. It's simply that they wouldn't maybe have accepted the, the message or the warning or whatever it happens to be, if it hadn't been in that form. So, I mean, that's an interesting sort of example. That's why I don't jump to the conclusion and say, I saw the ghost of Mark Bolton. I don't know if I did. 
I just saw an apparition in that form. And I was glad I did because it gave me the answer I was looking for. And, you know, I'm quite happy to say it might not have been a ghost at all. It doesn't matter. Does it matter if it was really him or not? No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter the equation. It mattered mm. what the answer to the equation was. That's what gave you your answer, your piece, what you're looking for. Yes, yes. I have two questions for you. One, I appreciate all of your time so far. We, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface on anything, yet we've covered so much. <laughs> and this could go on forever, and, and I'm here for it. <laughs> Uh, two quick questions for you. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in aliens? No. No aliens. Okay. And then. Oh, sorry, not close enough for us to encounter them at the moment. But is there another form of life somewhere out there in, in the vast universe? Yes, very likely. Once there were stars behind his eyes, but now they dimmed and crystallized. The gods are cruel. the veil Water reads the tea leaves spread on the Sunday papers The things that he sees there would astonish all his neighbours The strong man and the midget The bearded lady and the tattooed twins Once there were stars behind his eyes Crystallize the gods are cruel. They tease the fool who lifts the veil. Once there were stars behind his eyes, but now they've dimmed and crystallized. The gods are cruel. They tease the fool who lifts the veil. Do you think through astral projection or out-of-body experiences that somebody could witness your spirit? Do you mean, would I? can you encounter another spirit in astral projection? Could somebody you interpret your spirit as being a ghost? If you were astral projecting oh, oh. to New Jersey yes, and yes. I happened to walk outside of my house, I was like, I just yes, saw yes, a ghost. If, and this is a big if, if you could see me, if you did see me, then yes, you would think I was a ghost, but I would be what I call in, in these books a living apparition. And we had those examples of, of bilocation, but they're also what are called phantom forerunners. There are many case, documented cases of somebody who was expecting a visitor who saw that person arrive an hour or more before they physically did arrive. So was it because the person expecting them imagined that person, or was it because the person who was on the journey projected themselves ahead to their destination because they they were imagining that as we all do you know the journey you sort of go through it don't you before you actually physically do uh, oh yeah i must catch this and then i'm going to have to go down that road and so on i'm looking forward to seeing so and so or dreading them or whatever but there's many cases of phantom forerunners and we have you know the crisis apparitions the living apparitions the bilocation odes all mixed up together and you're pretty much, I think, talking about the same thing, which is this projection of consciousness or the projection of, of an etheric double, also known as the dream body or the astral body. And if somebody is acutely sensitive, not just sensitive, but acutely sensitive, and I suppose in, the, in a, a specific frame of mind, you might say a sort of relaxed frame of receptive frame of mind, they might 
see this person. Yes. Fascinating. And that answered my question. Perfect. You're also the author of many books on World War II, which is one of my favorite <laughs> time periods in history. I think there's so many sliding doors that could have happened during that war that would change our current reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, I believe it was an Amazon TV show and obviously books, The Man in the High Castle. Oh, yeah. That, that touched on it a little bit, but then it was also you know different timelines and, and realities, which is also just fascinating on its own. But I, I do just love World War II. And as I mean, obviously, without saying how terrible the Nazis were for things that they did, on the other side of that, just their their scientific achievements and through Operation Paperclip of different foreign governments, US, Russia, English governments taking top Nazi scientists and bringing them over to develop space programs, I think is a very interesting topic uh, of what they have. And then the Nazis' interest in the occult. Right. But let me say one thing about this, if if I may interject. You've raised an interesting subject. You said that there presumably could have been an alternative resolution to big events like that. And I would say no, because what we've been talking about, I say that evil, which is, if you like, self-interest made manifest in the extreme, cannot win in the end. Yes, it can cause dreadful damage and heartache and, and all the rest of it to many millions of people and for who knows how long it, it may be an indefinite period but it must end because it's counter to nature it's counter to universal laws you see the allies were very slow and the americans shall we say were very slow to enter the war but they had to in the end because that unnatural side of human nature could not be allowed to persist because the Nazis, although they were not consciously practicing the occult, were unconsciously unleashing forces within themselves. So they had the invocation to Mars, if you like, in the in the big mass rallies with the searchlights that looked like pillars in a temple, the music, the drums beating. They pressed all the right buttons. They created the right conditions to form a mass mind, which they could manipulate. But You can't do that forever. Eventually, people get their individuality back somehow. They may be brainwashed. They may be indoctrinated for their entire life. But eventually, if you want to call it that, our better nature must predominate, must must take over. Sometimes our better nature is not enough. It needs the physical bodies to arm themselves and go and smash the machinery of a dictatorship or what have you. What I do understand by all that I've studied is that we're on an evolutionary path and no matter how many uncomfortable detours we might have eventually we will return to the source in our bodies if you like we will reconnect with the source perhaps i should say that reconnect and overcome all our petty self-satisfying inclinations our primitive urges and our fears see this is part of it if you can understand our true nature if you can learn not to be frightened of the supernatural and everything, then we don't give in to these primitive impulses, which is to fear the other person, the unknown, and stamp on them because, you know, like a spider or something, we can't understand it. You know, we're way into sort of Buddhist philosophy almost. But the picture I get, my understanding of the big picture, is this very positive thing, and that these aberrations are are very much of our sort of time period, which on on a on the evolutionary scale is is very minor. We're still just out of the primitive, you know. We might think we're very sophisticated, but as long as we strive to understand our true nature through paranormal spirituality, whatever we do, and dare I say, become less constrained or reliant 
on religion as a crutch, even though it gives us important moral codes and laws and what have you, if we can learn to become more self-sufficient and more believing in ourselves, and not in fake false messiahs, which Hitler was, of course, and fake gurus like Alistair Crowley, who I've written funny songs about because I can't take these kind of people seriously. You know, I think humor is a very important part as a weapon almost to get yourself out, out of this intense thing. If we do, then we will hopefully not have these crises anymore. So I don't see it in quite the same way as you were saying that there would have been an alternative reality and they would have won. They would not, they were not fated or destined to win because evil itself is self-defeating and it's, it'll eat itself, which is exactly what they did. You know, they turned on each other because they were a pack of wild dogs. They were criminals, most of them, and some of them were psychopaths and certainly psychotic. So a, a group of individuals banding together like that can succeed up to a certain level, which they did. You know, with these forces, they it was incredible victories, fast victories at the beginning, but they were fated, as I understand it, and destined to implode. They deserved to. Unfortunately, they did so much damage. Their legacy, unfortunately, is sort of rising again because that mentality is part of our nature and we have to rise above it and control it and not give in to these venal sort of baser in human instincts and instead go for these higher instincts. That's really what it all boils down to, as I see it. I'm just happy that all the sliding doors that we could have chosen have ended up where we are today. And <laughs> uh, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. I truly appreciate you taking your time coming on thank, here. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome back anytime deep dive into World <laughs> War II, deep dive into more spiritual and supernatural anytime. Thank you so much. Let's get some socials. Where can people find you? Well, I've got a band camp site that I think get a lot of pleasure from. Otherwise it's, uh, oh, I've got an author site, paulroland.info, I think it is. And there's always Amazon, of course, good old Amazon or Barnes and Noble as you, as you would have them. There's plenty out there. They can read samples, look at covers and decide if that's worth reading. Oh, I would say one thing. The publisher I was writing for quite a lot of my books recycled some of my material. So please, if you look after my ghost books, there are only three official genuine ones. One is Hauntings. Another one is Ghosts and the Spirit World. And the other one is The Complete Book of Ghosts. Anything else about ghosts with my name on it might be an unauthorized you know, recycling. So be, beware. Consumers. We're not supporting. We're not going to support the bootlegs. So people should go yeah. into Amazon and look on your author page. Well, they're not they bootlegs. That's the trouble. It's the actual well, legitimate <laughs> publisher who's been doing doing a sharp practice. But those three books, you find a, there's an element of tongue in cheek in in all of those books because I do try to maintain a common sense approach to the supernatural. I know it sounds like a contradiction in terms, but if you go in with the right sort of uh, attitude, there's some quite revealing stuff in there. But there's also some sort of um, whimsical, cynical stuff where I, I don't take certain things too seriously. I think that's a, a healthy attitude to have in, in this subject. That's my last word on the subject as well. Take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah, exactly. All, oh, yeah. I'll put all of your socials in the show notes, make it easy for people thank to find. You. Thank you for coming on. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. Tune in next week and I'll see you then.
everyone that was our show don't forget to leave a review on itunes spotify or wherever you stream your podcast like and follow the podcast on facebook and instagram to stay up to date in all things wild and weird check out the links in the show notes for more information on our guests the biggest support you can offer is to tell everyone about the podcast until next time 